podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. My guest today is Albert Dadon. Uh, Albert Dadon is very well known in the music community, in the Australian Jewish community, in the Israeli community, in the building developing construction industry. He's a jazz musician, he's a philanthropist, a Melbourne business developer. One of the most important reasons that I wanted to talk to Albert is because it's a successful migrant story. And uh, really my first question to you, Albert, and thank you very much for joining us, is you get born in Morocco, you move to France, Israel, back to France, ends up in Australia, raise your family here. It's a successful migrant story, but it's not from one country to one. It's actually a whole journey. So tell us a little bit about how that happened and what your impressions are of how you've ended up in this country and would you have chosen not to do so if you'd had the chance again? Well, Christopher, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's always a pleasure to see you. And uh, so in terms of all of that, where I was born and where I, where I grew up and all these moves, that was never my fault. It was my parents' choice. So I think Australia is my country of choice because I decided to move here, even though it was love that brought me here because I, I got married to an Australian. And even though the deal was that we would stay in Paris, uh, she wanted to come back here to to raise a family. This and is Debbie. Uh, a Debbie, and yeah. I couldn't blame her for that. So also for me, I had this in the background, I always wanted to move to the United States. Right. Uh, I'll tell you uh, perhaps why. It's because my, my father uh, worked in uh, uh, an American base in Morocco for 15 years, and uh, he was uh, crazy of American culture. Right. So, What was he doing for the Americans? So he was a translator. Right. He was also working in insurance. He, he was doing... Uh, uh, this uh, is uh, the uh, 60s or the 50s? This is the 50s. Right. This mm-hmm. is the 50s. So, so after it's immediately the after the Second World mm-hmm. War. So, so my dad always had... Uh, was bringing home the jazz uh, albums, mm. and uh, <laughs> uh, that's where I you discovered. Got your love of yeah, jazz. yeah, that was the the, the uh, if you want the soundtrack of my childhood was Nat King Cole right. and, and uh, Frank Sinatra and all Le that jazz hot, as well as uh, opera that my dad used to like, and I hated that. So oh. at, at least uh, it uh, you can say that it's not because your father plays something that that's what you why you like it. I had an inclination towards jazz, and I didn't. 
uh, towards opera. Therefore, my f- brother, at the, the same year I came to live in Australia, he moved to the United States. And so all my um, nephews are born there. Um, so when Debbie wanted to come to Australia, I thought, well, Australia, it's like, uh, it's like America. <laughs> it's okay, a long way go. away, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's much smaller than America. Uh, well, not the territory. No, gosh, the no. territory, it's not uh, much smaller at all. And they speak English and it's a similar culture and so on. So I was, I was happy to, to come here. And of course, once I came here, and that was 1983. Um, I went back. You know, the, the, the story of a migrant is, is quite, it's always tragic because you don't realize that when you move, but you, you really unroot yourself. Mm. And I came to Australia and I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. I did not feel at home. It was all too strange for me. In 1987, we moved back to France. And and that's where the tragedy was that I did not feel at home in France anymore. Right. So Australia wasn't home. France wasn't home anymore. And Israel wasn't home? Nothing. Like I didn't feel at home anywhere. And you'd left Morocco when you were very small. Yeah, no, I didn't even consider Morocco Mm -hmm. because I only had fading memories of of my very early childhood. I left Morocco, I was not even five years old. And uh, so when when that happened, um, um, I met with my sister in, in France that was working for a company called Echo, and um, and she showed me all the systems and what they were doing and so on. It was a temporary staff. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to Australia and give that a go. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so we came back. And and that that time I felt home here. And, uh, and since then, of course, it's a maturity process because today I feel home everywhere. So yeah. you, you, you put me in Africa, I feel home. You put me in Asia. And you travel home. a lot. I travel quite a bit. So you're on the tour in the United States a lot. Yeah. So, so it's a maturity process, I would say. Uh, but it was also, of course, the fact that you unroot yourself. That's, um, but now my country is Australia. Mm. And anywhere I go, I'm, I'm, I'm Australian. Mm. And I don't say I'm French or sometimes my accent uh, betray me, <laughs> betrays <think>? me. But <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I've got a knocker accent. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find that hard to convince anybody. <laughs> but I, I, I hear, I hear the, the Australian in me, you know, but I know it translates a little bit different. It's a very interesting characteristic, the Australian characteristic. I mean, I've, I've met a lot of people now over the years from places like France, the United States, obviously Israel. I think the characteristic that most makes Australians stand out is how, uh, how relaxed and easygoing we are in comparison to many other cultures around the world. And I think that's because we're very young as, a, as a, a country in terms of the, the white aspects of our nation as opposed to the indigenous ones because uh, we tend to sort of just get, out, get along well with reasonably everybody. Would you agree with that? Perhaps. Definitely there is this relaxed element in Australia that's nice. Not everybody's relaxed, of course, but uh, generally the culture is fairly relaxed. But you go to the United States, you get the same feeling in California, for yes. instance. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get exactly the, That's what I like. I don't find uh, people in Washington very relaxed. 
You do? I don't find them very no, relaxed. No, they're not no. relaxed. No, that's right. They're not <laughs> they relaxed. They all seem very stressed all the time. Yeah, and you go to New York, they're not relaxed at all. No. You know, the, no. it's like New York makes me think more of uh, the, uh, the Paris, you know. Yeah, it's, back in it's Europe. It's more like that. Um, but definitely the West Coast of the United States and Australia. And there's a lot of similarities. Yes. And in the weather, we, of course, we could as well. Be, we could be in, in this, uh, a state of the United States. That would be fine. By well, me too, by the way. <laughs> I, I would be I would be happy about that. Well, if I comment on that, it could become political dynamite. <laughs> yes. So I will stay away from that for the minute. I'm not there. a politician. No, so I'm not anymore I, I, I can say whatever I want. But we yeah. first met when I was a politician, mm-hmm. which is uh, a good thing to talk about, when I was very young. What's your memory of our first meeting? Um, so I, I know that you came to my place for a function, that uh, uh, you came with uh, uh, one of your good friends that since became the Speaker of the House. Tony Smith. Tony Smith. That's right. And uh, it was for an Israeli charity group or uh, activist yes. group. It was yes. an environmental one. If was I recall, it, wasn't Graham Samuel involved in Graham there? Graham Samuel was he there. He was there, but I don't know what he was doing it there. It was the tree planting group. What's that oh, called? It, was that JNF? JNF. Oh, it was the Jewish go. National so, okay. Fund. So it was for JNF. Anyway, yeah. uh, I think we landed our home. And there you were, young Christopher <laughs> and young, uh, and young uh, Tony Smith. And uh, it was great to meet the two of you. And, uh, you know, you, you were such uh, great supporters of Israel. And I thought, well, th- those guys, I, I, I need to get behind. If I can, in any way I can help, I will help. And you really did. Like you've really been, the Australia-Israel relationship has been one of your great passions. Actually, not just that relationship, but Israel itself has been one of your great passions. But I always felt that a lot of the resources that you've tried to bring together in your business life have not been just to have a good life and the life for your children and and Debbie and friends and people that know you, but also to make a difference. And this philanthropy side of your character is really, it's it's a big part of what you you do every day, isn't it? It's not like the Australia-Israel Leadership Dialogue, which you began, which has morphed into the International Leadership Dialogue, but also the Australia-Israel Cultural Exchange, the Australia-Israel Film Festival, the Jazz Festival, of course, which is not necessarily Israeli-related. No, nothing to do with Israel for Nothing that. to do with Israel. But that, that Israeli side of things, it's not, to me, I would characterize it as, it's not about just the politics of Israel, the values of Australia, as in foreign affairs and defense, coupled with the values of Israel. It's been trying to explain to the Australian people that there's a whole cultural and social side of Israel that they don't really understand. And not being able to convince people necessarily to themselves, sort of travel to Israel or whatever, you've thought, well, I'll bring part of Israel to Australia through things like the film festival. Uh, We have been very active together in the Australia-Israel Leadership Dialogue, which, of course, you founded and still uh, run uh, now the International Leadership Dialogue, and I'm very pleased to have been to, I think, 11 out of the 12 of the dialogues over the last dozen or more years. and so that was the thing that really brought us together was our interest in Israel mm-hmm. and its perceptions in the world and how to support it and how to help Israel as well because they're not always right about everything. But why do you think people have such strong opinions about Israel? You know, th- what pushed me to to get involved and to um, do the dialogue and so on um, it's because there is an inherent injustice about the views 
the general views of the world uh, toward Israel. And uh, it comes from the fact that uh, the, the more we go forward and people seem to have shorter memories and people forget uh, they forget the reason why Israel was established, how it was established, uh, what was the situation when Israel was established, and so on. And then there is uh, all this postmodern uh, doctrine that uh, the Israelis are also guilty of, by the way. Internal to Israel, uh, there is a lot of postmodernists in Israel, and not uh, necessarily uh, helping uh, the the traditional uh, Jewish and Israeli culture, and but that's a different subject. So you have a situation where there are narratives that are competing, and um, out of nowhere you had the Arabs uh, living in those uh, in the territories, especially in Jordan. Uh, because the, the the West Bank was occupied by Jordan, mm-hmm. as you as you know, uh, and then suddenly uh, those Arabs that were living there suddenly they were calling themselves Palestinians. So th- there are some of us that still remember. A lot of people have forgotten the Palestinians were the Israelis. Uh, let me remind you, uh, the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra was called the Palestinian Philharmonic Orchestra. Right. Uh, every Israeli had a Palestinian passport because it was called Palestine. And uh, at some point, uh, the UN uh, declared um, an independence of a state of Palestine. And then Ben-Gurion, in his wisdom, who was the Prime Minister of Israel, after the Declaration of Independence, decided to change the name from Palestine to Israel. Right. So if he had not changed that name, Israel would still be Palestine. Wow. The Israelis would still be Palestinians. But they left a vacuum. It certainly isn't the case, They, is le- it? they left a vacuum. Right. And that vacuum was immediately... Uh, not immediately, it took a couple of decades to start to be occupied and they became the Palestinians in the early 70s, right? And since then, there was therefore a new narrative. But that doesn't explain to me why people have such a strong opinion about Israel today. I mean, that that is an historical story, which is fair enough. I wasn't suggesting that that was why. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that there are uh, competing narratives and uh, unfortunately, the Israeli narrative isn't winning. That's as simple as that. And I find that it is very unfair because, you know, there is a prime minister in Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, who's quite an extraordinary guy, even though right now he was running against, uh, he he put uh, uh, himself to primary. And I went against him, Mm. as you know. Yes, for for, uh, Gideon Saar. Mm And Gideon got about 25% of the vote, is that yeah, right? Yes, yeah. 26. 26. Well, not bad, bad considering he's absolutely, coming from nowhere. Absolutely. I think he will, he will eventually take over. Uh, but um, I was saying that to, to tell you that I, I don't have a particular bias for Bibi at the present. Mm. I think he's done his time. 15 years in power, that's enough. Uh, seriously. Otherwise, uh, you, you become like a... Like one of those banana republics, you know, where you've got a <laughs> president for time, life, yes. you know, that's uh, so it's... Well, now we've offended both that, the, the Netanyahu time? people and the um, uh, Arabs, so yeah, we're probably, probably we're now balancing <laughs> it out. <laughs> so I told you, I'm not a politician. Uh, well, most people wouldn't realise, Albert, that there's probably about three million 
Israeli citizens who are Arabs. Absolutely. Out of a population of about eight, nine million. Yeah. And if you ask most of those people if they'd prefer to be under the government of Israel or the Palestinian Authority, it's a very easy choice because Israel is a democracy which they, uh, they have freedoms within and the Palestinian Authority is uh, not. You know, there is uh, no constitution in Israel, but there is a declaration of independence. And the, uh, the second sentence of the declaration of independence says, well, actually, the whole sentence says that uh, Israel is a Jewish state. And then it says immediately after that, respectful of all culture and religions. You can look it up. Mm-hmm. And, I believe and, it. And so you've got, uh, for instance, uh, diplomats in, in the in Israeli foreign affair that are Arabs. Yeah, of course. Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Druze. And the Druze are a very important part of the Bedouins. IDF. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, so, and the so, Bedouins too. Yeah. The second mm. language in, in Israel is Arabic. Mm. And Arabic is taught to, in school in schools where uh, mostly Jews go, not just the Arab schools. So you you have a pluralistic culture and an acceptance. Uh, I've got one of my best friends, he's a general in Israel, I'm not going to say his name, but you know him actually, uh, but he's a two-star general. And he says, you know, if you don't like the Arabs, just don't stay in Israel. Because, you know, you you have to like the culture, the Arabic culture. Um, well, it, it permeates it's, the whole of Israel. It permeates the whole thing. I mean, anybody who goes to Israel, and I've been there a dozen times, uh, you know, you, it's, you're not going to a Jewish, a country that's only got a Jewish culture. It has a very strong uh, Arabic culture and a very strong Christian culture, uh, as well as being a, a Tel Aviv is a very sophisticated, almost European city. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, a Middle Eastern city. And yes. It's got its own culture now. But of course, I mean, I think that's a that's a, a very good uh, uh, understanding of the role that the Palestinians can play in Israel. And one of the things I also wanted to talk about is Australia's strength of support for Israel. So I think it's basically values based. We think that uh, in is in the Middle East, there are certain countries that share our values to lesser or greater extent. To the greatest extent, Israel. There are democracy, freedom of association free press, that they're a liberal democracy. I mean, if you went to Tel Aviv, it's a very secular city. I mean, Jerusalem is not a secular city. It's a very religious city, as we both know. But Tel Aviv... 50-50 in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's 50-50. Tel Aviv is very much more uh, uh, liberal. You know that in Jerusalem, they've got a gay parade. In Jerusalem? Of course. Golly, I thought they'd have one in Tel Aviv. They have one in Tel Aviv. (laughs) They have one in Jerusalem too. Is that right? Absolutely. Well, good on them. (laughs) So I think the Australia-Israeli relationship is based on these values, these shared values. Uh, Would you agree with that or do you have a different... There is so so many shared values. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you feel that the Australia-Israel leadership dialogue has been um, helping to encourage that understanding between the two countries? I think that it has contributed in some way to get greater understandings between our leaders. Mm. But now, as you since 2011, mm. the UK joined. Mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're referring to the Australian-Israel leadership dialogue the, with the UK, and uh, I'm hoping that the Americans, we had a little attempt with the, with the states, but now I'm going to be... It was difficult in, this year because of all the um, things going on yes, in the exactly. Washington. Well, the Australia-Israel Leadership Dialogue mm-hmm. morphed into the Australia-UK 
Israel Leadership Dialogue. And then now, because it's more international, because we have guests from France and there have been people there from US, as you pointed out, and Canada, it's now uh, an international leadership dialogue. But the purpose of it is not changed no, dramatically. No, yeah, it is, a, it is a, a forum for people to meet and talk about the issues that matter in Israel today and around the world. Yes, and to be absolutely clear, it's uh, to take people out of their babble and to put them uh, together with people that don't necessarily agree. Like, for instance, you know, I've, I've, I've vented a few views here in, in your podcast already. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't invite people that agree with me. I, I, I often invite people that completely disagree with what I'm saying. Well, otherwise, uh, it could be a bit dumb. Uh, well, what's the point? Mm. Uh, otherwise, just and talk to yourself. Learn? What are you going to learn? Exactly. You're all just agreeing with each other all the time. Exactly. So, so I believe in ro- in robust debates, and I, I believe in the art of disagreement, and that is an art that is uh, totally lost. Well, totally, maybe not, uh, uh, but it is lost, right? We need well, it's to, changed. Hasn't we need it? to Social media back. has changed that because it's so shouty if you don't agree with somebody that a lot of people now shy away from public disagreement because they way, just don't I, want I, it. I don't mind if it's shouty as long as you attack the idea. Mm. Uh, when I don't like it is when it's become shouty and you attack the man or the woman that mm. is actually expressing the idea. In which case it's hopeless. And that's what is happening now in social media. That's why mm. I'm not in social media. Yeah. But I am on Twitter and Facebook, but I have mm. to say I, I haven't done it myself ever. Me neither. And uh, but I like Instagram. Do you do Instagram? I do Instagram. See, but I, I, like I, Instagram. I don't do Instagram. Someone does it for me. Too. I like it because I find it nice and it's friendly and social. Mm-hmm. And I've worked out that if somebody you know says something stupid on Instagram on my account, I just unfollow them and they just disappear. Whereas I really couldn't be bothered doing all that with Facebook and Twitter. I haven't got that much time in the day. Well, um, you know, I've learned very early. In the in the nineties, you had those chat rooms. Do you remember the chat rooms? Yeah, not really. Um, I mean, I remember them, but I never got involved with yeah, them. Yeah, so I got involved then. And what I've noticed, uh, because you know, w- w- no one had any prior experience to those things, and uh, you were getting into discussions, and suddenly they turned into fights, and then <laughs> suddenly yes. I, d- I realized that they had plenty of time, and I hadn't any yes, time, and they can't and, stop. Yeah, and so when Twitter appeared. Uh, it seemed to me that they transferred all the chat rooms into Twitter. It's a strange And, and what they business. had in the chat rooms, I, I found in Twitter. So I thought, okay, that's not for me. Mm. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get quite involved there. Yeah, look, it's a pretty toxic forum, the old Twitter. But people can't help it. They want to be involved, don't they? When we first started doing things together like the dialogue, and when I first started going to Israel in the mid-1990s, the Oslo peace process was in full swing. The accords were just signed. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very different is Israel and Middle East to today. And yet I think a lot of the people who write about Israel are still writing about an Israel that doesn't exist anymore or actually a Middle East that doesn't exist anymore. Because 25 years ago, the Middle East was basically united, more or less united around the Palestinian issue and the Israeli issue. But today... If you go to the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Jordan and talk to politicians about Israel, Israel's not the, the issue they the talk about. Anymore. They talk about Iran now. Exactly. And there's been a big shift, yeah. would, would you say? Absolutely. And mm. that's, that's the Obama factor. Right. 
Because I believe that the the agreement that he had with Iran, where he gave 150 billion to the Iranians and uh, had all this uh, accord where they promised that they would not um, uh, develop their nuclear arm. However, there was no limitations on the cruise missiles and so on. All the things that would deliver the nuclear arm. Because, you know, they got to a point where for them to actually finish the job of nu- the nuclear arm is not very far off. Right. You know? So if you develop well, all the arsenal years, around... Two or three years maximum. Exactly. If, if you develop the, the arsenal around it, uh, then, uh, you know, what have you done? And in any case, what that has provoked is for the Saudis to be very scared about the prospect of having um, a nuclear Iran, and that has uh, brought them closer uh, to uh, to Israel. So that was that was the dynamic that has really changed. I and can't that dy- see that changing very much in the future. Well, you know that n- now Air India uh, goes straight to Israel, and for the first time, they are able to go to Israel, uh, flying through Saudi Arabia. Is that right? Yeah, the airspace is now available to them. Much as I love talking about Middle East and politics, um, I do want to talk about your great passion, which is uh, jazz. And uh, most people wouldn't know that you're behind the Graham Bell Awards uh, that noted the importance of uh, successful jazz uh, musicians in Australia, mm-hmm. another philanthropic pursuit of yours. And you're also behind a bird's basement so that people have got somewhere to play jazz in Melbourne. And I'm sure you have been one of the largest sponsors of the Melbourne Jazz Festival for most of its existence. Tell us a bit about your passion for jazz. What do you love about it? So, as I said uh, earlier on, the jazz was the background of my, the the soundtrack of my childhood, if you Mm -hmm. want. And uh, I started playing music. I was eight years old. I wanted to play accordion by the way. Right. And uh, my mum went to get me an accordion for my eighth birthday and she found out that she didn't have enough money so she took something else that was there and that was a guitar. Right. You could have been like Hans the accordion player. I could have ended up as an accordion player. Have you heard of Hans the accordion player? No, actually. (laughs) He's been in America's Got Talent. He's an Australian from Adelaide. There you go. I've I've, I've missed that. He's a journalist. I missed that. You look him up. (laughs) <laughs> but in any case, uh, I ended up with a guitar. So uh, for me, uh, jazz became something that I started to play once we moved to France, once my parents moved to France. And there, uh, Django was playing in ra- on radio. I loved that sound. And uh, I've never been successful in playing uh, that kind of music, the gypsy jazz, right. but I love gypsy jazz. And so, you know, I started playing in bands. I was 14 years old. And so it's it's always been there for me. When I came to Australia, I've kind of stopped playing in bands uh, for the first uh, 10 years that I was here. And um, that I really missed that. Mm-hmm. And in my early 30s, I started again. And... I did an album when I was 32 years old called Acid Love. That's That's uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, that was a bit of a hit. That was, uh, yeah, it it became um, well-known then. And and I continued like that. So when you were talking about the jazz festival, 
So the jazz festival in Melbourne stopped in year 2000 right. for lack of budget. And I was asked uh, together with uh, Michael Tortoni, who is the current artistic director of the festival, uh, who I, I put him in the chair in 2008. Right. Uh, and so um, we started this, we restarted the, the festival in 2000. And in 2003, I became the chair and in 2005, or 2006, sorry, I became the artistic director. Mm -hmm. And I left in 2008, after the festival in 2008. And so, and then I missed uh, organizing bands <laughs> yes. because I like to contribute also to my fellow musicians. So yes. I started this uh, Bird's Basement yeah. only four years ago. And it's not the only jazz club in Melbourne. There's no. plenty of jazz clubs in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Melbourne, Melbourne is the capital of jazz in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, all musicians around Australia aspire to come, to live in Melbourne, and to play here. Right. And it's something to take proud of. Mm. I think that Melbourne is the capital city, uh, the cultural capital city of Australia. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and for for a long time, for a long time, I think until 1927, it was the capital full stop, right? Well, it was the uh, temporary capital. Well, it was not a temporary at the beginning, but it became a temporary. No, it was always planned to be temporary. Yeah, yeah. Canberra was always there. Always had to be a capital within one hundred miles of the uh, New South Wales border. Of but the it's Victoria interesting border. that they decided that Melbourne would be the, the the temporary capital, not Sydney. Maybe there was not enough space in Sydney. Maybe, <laughs> but in any case, I think that we can claim I'm from the, Adelaide. Adelaide's clearly the cultural capital of Australia. It's got the Adelaide Festival. Yes, that's true. And you also have the casino there. Well, we have a <laughs> casino there. You've got a casino. We have a casino. Your casino is magnificent. You know, I don't like casinos. But don't you? No. What's wrong with casinos? Well, I think that it, uh, it creates misery. Well, I don't really, I don't go to the casino, yeah. I must be said, but I don't have anything against it. I mean, the, 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 those who have a lot of money to spend, I don't cry for them. Uh, but those who don't have any money, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really a heartbreaking thing. Yeah, I think the pokies are sort of very much in that category, all the pokies in pubs particularly. Yeah. So in any case, uh, yep. the, going back to the jazz, mm. uh, uh, so I'm very happy with the Bird's Basement and mm. I hope you, you come soon to see a concert. Well, I've been great. there a couple of times. Oh, you have? Yeah. With me? Yeah, with you. There you go. I don't so you've even... forgotten. I've forgotten. What's <laughs> made such an impression on you. <laughs> That's because you were deep in the moment. Oh, perhaps. Of playing the music. Oh, you, so you came to see me? Yes. Yeah. All right. So yes, I do yeah. play there once uh, in a blue moon. But yeah. you also tour. You love the. You spend a lot of time in the states touring, don't you? Not anymore. And you've got a new CD now. A I've new got a album. new CD, but I haven't. Albert plays Jabim. Yeah, I haven't toured in the states for two years, but I'm going to start again because of this new album. And uh, yes, I saw uh, a concert of yours in Adelaide as well, at uh, Promethean on uh, Grote Street. That's some time ago. Yeah, yeah? some time ago. Yeah, but I have known you a long time. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And the Bell Awards are still going? The Bell Award is still going. Yeah. So I started that in 2002 uh, with Graham Bell. I spoke at a couple of the big dinners, do you remember? Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I told them about my knowledge of um, Dukovic, David Dukovic, the jazz player yes. from Adelaide. Mm. So, you know, no, I recall that. Mm. And um, that, was, uh, that was at the BMW Edge, right? In, um, yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that event is uh, the only event that recognizes the talents of Australian jazz musicians. So it's a, it's a good event for our community. And uh, all of this, of course, has been fueled by your business success. 
in Melbourne, particularly in construction. And I think you told me once that you'd been very lucky in business. Uh, I'm lucky in everything I do. You came along at the right time. I think I was born under a nice star. (laughs) And so I I feel feel blessed and lucky. That's that's true. Well, the Melbourne landscape has changed dramatically in the last 20, 30 years, hasn't it? You've been a part of that. Definitely. I hope I have. But, you know, I think that in business, you need to do everything very thoroughly. Uh, You need to be intellectually rigorous about all your affairs. Uh, But then why succeed? No one knows. So you need to have luck. (laughs) And for all those who don't recognize that luck plays a role in what they're doing, uh, to me, that's arrogance. And so I take absolutely... Uh, the the minimal credit uh, to to the success if there is success of whatever I'm doing, but it's it's a it's a wonderful thing, and I don't know if it's a, if it's a European character trait or a Jewish character trait. Certainly in the United States, it's a character trait for people who've made a lot of money to also be philanthropists, and it's not something that has penetrated the Australian culture for the last hundred plus years. It's more so these days, but is that because we didn't have as many people who'd made such large amounts of money as like the United States? No, Christopher, I don't agree. When I first came to this country, uh, very quickly I joined a Rotary Club. Right. And and I met people that didn't make a lot of money, but they were always saying one thing which I took from them. Service. uh, Which is giving back. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite frankly, that's humbling. And when you see uh, people of modest backgrounds wanting to give back, uh, to me, that's an incredible inspiration, much more so than when a billionaire gives a big check. Uh, uh, That makes no difference to him. Uh, So so to me, uh, Australia, absolutely, from the beginning, from the very start that I came here, uh, I saw a generosity in spirit that I have to recognize. That's terrific. And that's, I guess that's also part of the successful migrant story too. It's, uh, you know, coming to Australia, wanting to contribute back to the country that makes you feel at home. Well, the the first two things I did when I came here, I became Freemason. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) That's interesting. I, I joined the lodge. And, uh, and a lot uh, of Jews in Freemasonry? Lots. Is that right? Well, maybe not anymore because I haven't been to Lodge for over 20 years. Because Catholics weren't welcome amongst the Freemasons. Oh, there were lots of Catholics in the really? Lodge. Of course, of course. Um, the rabbis and uh, and uh, pr- Catholic priests sitting together in the Lodge, there. that's very, Get very common. Get out of town. That's very common. Is I that promise right? You, well, these days, but not historically, surely. No, I, I, I promise you, since I came to Australia, wow. at least, uh, I cannot uh, speak well, about it historically. It's a very good thing. And, you know, in Lodge, what we're doing is also about, all about charity. I mean, mm. look at the Freemasons Hospital and so on. And then I joined also the Rotary. So, um, and to me, I did that precisely to learn about the society I was here. It became my society. And uh, Australia is a migrant society that is i mean there's nobody who's been here since 1788 can claim to be anything other than a migrant and uh we're lucky in the last couple of decades that we've decided to as a nation to embrace our indigenous history something that we didn't really talk a lot about um until the last quarter century but i think that is changing as well which is a wonderful thing and that might be a new phase for the way our community and our society develops which is great 
thank you very much for coming on my podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Absolutely, I did. We've thank, enjoyed thank you having for inviting you. me. It's been good fun and uh, good luck in the future. Thank you, Chris. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Jennifer Goggin.